Welcome to another episode of Should You Take That Case with your host, Lisa Wade, your friendly neighborhood legal nurse consultant, owner of Wade Nurse Consultants, and creator of our private LinkedIn community, the Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. That is where we get all of our stellar attorney guests. The goal of our show is to be a resource for legal professionals who pursue medical cases by sharing their experience and insights as defense or as plaintiff attorneys. You can catch prior episodes at www.wadenurseconsultants.com slash blog on LinkedIn and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Should You Take That Case, Lisa Wade. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Should You Take That Case, where we discuss medical case screenings and the attorneys that run those medical litigations. It's our goal of our show to be a resource for legal professionals like all of you who pursue medical cases by sharing their experiences and insights be that as a defense or a plaintiff attorney. I'm your host, Lisa Wade, legal nurse consultant, owner of Wade Nurse Consultants, but also the creator of our LinkedIn private group, Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. That's where we get all of, oh, all of our wonderful attorney guests for Should You Take That Case? And we are going to jump into it today with Drew Richer from Jersey. And you're going to see he is a wildly charming and charismatic creature. And we'll get to him momentarily. First, we're going to scoot over to the comments, see if we have any live visitors or if you're catching us on the replay, just put your comments in this box. If you're a new viewer, put an N in that box. If you are a veteran viewer, put a V in that box. If you are an attorney, put an A in that box so we can see you and say hello. If you are a part of, ta-da, women-owned law, that's my group. In uh, LinkedIn, go visit us and learn all about women-owned law and meet up and maybe join with some like-minded legal professionals. Now, we are going to, like I said, get into a talk with Drew Richard today, but first, let me introduce him. E. Drew Richer is the senior partner of Richer Leone LLC with offices in Glen Rock and Morristown, New Jersey. He is certified by the New Jersey State Supreme Court as a civil trial attorney. Drew has tried nearly 100 cases to verdict and has served as either counsel of record or Amicus counsel in nearly 40 reported decisions of the United States Supreme Court, the New Jersey Supreme Court, and Appellate Division. His firm was 
one of the two firms in the country nominated for elite trial lawyers in medical malpractice by American Lawyers Media this year. Drew helped draft the language in New Jersey's Patients First and Patient Safety Acts and is an adjunct professor at Seton Hall University School of Law, where he teaches courses in medical malpractice law and medical malpractice litigation. And Drew was a founding member of the Board of Trial Lawyers Care, the organization established to provide free legal representation to victims and the families of victims of the terrorist attack of 9-11. And now it's time to meet Drew. There you are. You made it. Oh, except me. I'm muting you. There. Oh, well, let's oh, try there. again. Hi, Lisa. How you doing, Drew? Good for you. Oh, great. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm so happy you, you stopped by today. And we are going to talk all about how medical records pop up in your litigations, which happens all the time, I'm sure. But first, we want to hear all about you, Drew. How did you get to be such a stupendous attorney? Were you little Drew, three years old, you know, with a gavel and, um, you know, issuing out decisions? Just tell me how it started. Well, I start off by telling you that, yes, I'm one of those people who knew I wanted to be a lawyer pretty much when I was in kindergarten because my father had been uh, the manager of the United States Senate restaurant in uh, Washington, D.C. back in the 1950s. And I got a whole lot of books from him when I was a kid about presidents and law and justices and all that stuff and appealed. But I'd also tell you that in some regards, uh, a lot of things happened by fluke. I ended up at a, a law school in New York, but as a girlfriend, it was a law school in New Jersey, studied with her there closer to home and ended up getting my first job, not from my law school in New York, but from the law school in New Jersey and ended up uh, working for a medical legal firm, working with a nurse attorney and being dragged off to the medical school library, learning how to do medical research in those days. And all of a sudden, late one night, I'm looking something up, and I suddenly realize something sounds very familiar about this article I'm researching. And I go back to the office and find out that the article was written by the defendant and was about the very case that my boss had sent me to go to research, which, of course, obviously significantly changed things. And uh, really, I, I was hooked, uh, absolutely hooked. And then everything after that, I'll be the first one to say this to you, luck beats skill every time. Really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, it's good. No, I mean that because I got hired to work for somebody who was really one of the deans of trial work in New Jersey. Uh, and he made a decision after uh, some disagreements with the partners of the firm to leave when I was out of law school about two years. Uh, as a result, there was a case that I got to try uh, two years out of law school, but uh, by all other considerations, I never would have gotten to try. And this is a 
1987 at my first trial. And it resulted in a $1.2 million verdict for my client. And not for nothing, you know, I may have done something right in that trial, but it was pure luck that I got to try it. And then it got published jury verdict review and analysis. And it ended up being their cover, not only on that edition in New Jersey, but that edition nationally. And then on emotional piece they sent out before you knew it, this kid was suddenly getting a lot of medical negligence work uh, sent his way from people who were impressed by that. By the way, keep in mind, at that time, I think that was not only uh, one of the rare individual plaintiff building deliverage in New Jersey, um, at the time, it made me the youngest lawyer win a million dollar verdict country. All right. Congratulations. It looks like you are a victim of circumstance. <laughs> then walk in circumstance. You take the luck when you get it. All right. Excellent. Well, Drew, next, which we always want to know, how do you decide which cases are worth working on if they're, you know, how they're going to turn out? Are they even, you know, good or reasonable or cases with any merit? How do you decide if you should take that case? Yeah. There's lots of different levels. Of, keep in mind, first of all, uh, you know, for the people listening, I have a partner who is a physician attorney in my practice as well. Uh, we have, you know, a nurse who works in our practice. Um, and we certainly do screen very carefully. Um, obviously, the story on the phone isn't always necessarily what will be the facts by the time you get to trials. And so there is sort of a starting point. I mean, there are certain cases, uh, you know, we have a list of five types of cases we generally do not take. And then there are other things that really grab your attention. I mean, look, anybody who does this work is certainly recognition, recognizes that any sort of brain uh, injured infant case is going to obtain your attention instantly because those tend to be the highest uh, awards that we see. Uh, so there's no doubt that they're going to always get some added look, et cetera. Now I'll come back in a second to you know a couple of areas that we really found particularly that um, we focused upon. But the five we try to stay away from are, uh, number one, we try to stay away from dental cases. Fortunately, juries have a tendency to think that if they provide enough money for the restorative dentistry, that's all they needed to do. So unless it's a dentistry case that involves, uh, you know, something beyond the dentition, like a failed cancer diagnosis, we tend to, you know, stay away from uh, Number two, we tend to stay away from cases that involve uh, podiatry, uh, mm -hmm. unless there's been any amputation. Um, you know, I hate to say it's a lot of jurors in this world. A lot of people have foot phobies. So there's a lot of people don't seem to light feet or something. Um, and, you know, uh, all times those cases, unless they, yeah, you know, there's been an amputation involved, you know, below the knee or above the knee, there isn't something there that uh, merit the cost. I'm always very happy in the fact that I have a former associate as a podiatrist lawyer, so I tend to send those to him. We tend to stay away from many of the wrongful death cases in New Jersey because New Jersey's wrongful death law 
is just horrendous. And the ones we stay away from, unfortunately, are generally the wrongful death cases of the very old and on some occasions the very young. Because our wrongful death law does not allow anybody to be compensated for what is generally the biggest loss they experience, which is the emotional trauma of the loss of their loved one. They are essentially limited to the economic value of that lost loved ones providing either money or services to them. And in the older population, we all hope to get to that. I hope to get to the point where I get to rely on my kids instead of them on me. So there comes a point in our age where the way the law is structured, it's very lacking support for the true damage of that instance. Um, and then I would also tell you, we do tend to stick away from cases that involve plastic surgery. And I do not mean to belittle individuals who had to have plastic surgery done for all sorts of reasons, but jurors have a tendency to think of those cases as if you played with what God gave, you got what you deserved. And so for that reason, again, unless it's a you know, case where, you know, we've had instances where somebody had to have a plastic surgery done because they had a breast cancer. A diagnosis and they were having reconstruction or we had one where um, a client had um, genetic not developed one breast so you know she had a procedure done to develop you know to reconstruct that uh, breast in adulthood and it did not go the way it should obviously and then the last area we tend to stay away from are the the the, the suicide cases uh, largely because unfortunately there's an awful lot of bias in that field from, you know, the general public, it's, it's terribly unfortunate. Uh, but again, deal with the, the other side of it, which is our New Jersey, you know, uh, wrongful death law, focusing on economics and individuals who have severe depressive situations may well not be in a position with it earning this, you know, income. And you also have the difficulty, unfortunately, that reasonably speaking, uh, there's a lot of statistics um, regarding the uh, people who will uh, accomplish that uh, their own death, you know, at their own hand uh, on the first attempt, it actually is very uh, stilted uh, by sex. Uh, mm -hmm. But you know, uh, men tend to succeed. Women tend to often have their uh, first attempt be a cry for the help. So look at those much more on. Uh, cases where, you know, they've failed a woman and often they failed the man for that reason. But have we taken? Of course. Have we succeeded on them? Yes. There are certain very clear things that have to be there. But, you know, those are the ones I tell people try to be, a, you know, put a little more warning out there before you take cases in those fields. Mm -hmm. Now, let me tell you two areas that, you know, uh, I find particularly are, you know, uh, important. Um, one of those is uh, without doubt, we've done an awful lot of cases involving uh, mammography. Um, Armin being a radiologist, his mother having uh, once been one of the leading you know, medical school professors on the, in the field of mammography, you know, certainly has made a difference. Um, the reality that, you know, you're dealing in something where, um, you know, one of my exhibit people I work with, his tagline is seeing is believing and nothing can be more true with a jury. 
Mm-hmm. I can put something in front of the jury and I can, you know, as a layperson, circle it and show it to them and explain that's what it is. Got missed. Likewise, you know, so can my expert, so can the jurors. But those have been very strong cases we've handled and I think are very uh, much ones to look at. The other one is, that's more recent for us than, you know, look, maybe your focus sometimes is a little driven by, you know, your background, whatever. Again, Armin's a radiologist. Um, I'm the son of two parents who had uh, major complications that led ultimately uh, in one instance to her early death and the other one to long-term complications, cancer from smoking. And, you know, we've designed that we, and we are so good about so many of the screening tests for other forms of, of cancer in the United States, you know, breast cancer, you know, every woman gets, you know, reminded repeatedly if, if they go for their annual physical by their doctor for their annual mammogram. As a guy, you better believe that my PSA is getting taken every time I go for an annual physical. And, you know, thankfully I haven't had, haven't had to have any greater conversation, but several of my close friends have had their run in with, um, you know, prostate cancer. Um, there, you know, certainly is uh, all of us, once you're after age 50 and now they're saying 40 in many instances, you know, getting our colonoscopies and making sure that we don't run into a, you know, a problem with colon cancer, but, you know, years of research were, were done before the United States preventative task force back in 2012, 13, you know, issued a recommendation that if you're 55 and over been a smoker, smoked, you know, over your course of your lifetime, uh, what works out to, uh, you know, a pack a day, 30 years, 30 year pack history. Um, and you haven't stopped smoking 15 years ago or longer. You should be getting an annual low dose CT because they can find very small lesions that can be surgically corrected to avoid people dying from lung cancer. And the compliance in this regard is just not what it needs to be. I will tell you, we've succeeded bringing these cases already. We continue to, you know, take them on. And now the USPTF just recently in the last year has moved the recommendation to age 50 and a 20-year pack history to try and grab more people who, by virtue of getting a very, very safe, minimal uh, exposure CT could potentially, you know, be saying. And candidly, I, you know, we've unfortunately handled some very sad cases where people went every single year and every year the doctor, you know, identified they smoked, identified they smoked enough to meet the, you know, the pack history. And every year told them to stop smoking, but not one year told them to go get a low dose CT. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, that bias against smokers when so many people who have smoked. Now, I remember my dad, you know, 1968, the Surgeon General's warning came out and went on the side of the pack of cigarettes. And my father had smoked from the time he was, you know, 17 until then. And the day the Surgeon General made that warning, my father put down his pack of cigarettes, never smoked again. Mm-hmm. He still suffered from smoking-related cancer. My mother, addicted to that 
drug, which is essentially what a cigarette really is, and we should admit it. She couldn't stop. She didn't stop. And she smoked right up to the point where they told her that she had, you know, pre-cancerous oral lesions that ultimately became cancerous and ended up in her having to have half of her palate removed. And then later on having to have, you know, much more extensive surgery that she only survived maybe another six or eight months afterwards. So for me, I look at it as we lawyers, you nurses, we have an ability to make a difference. We have an ability to influence the medical community in a way that is beneficial, favorable to the public while doing what we want to do from the standpoint of serving each individual client well at the time and handling cases that are, are capable of supporting very high costs associated prosecuting malpractice cases. I hope that's all. Well, it's, it's, it sounds like you have, you know, uh, lots of motivators that are pointing you where you are right now. And, um, and, and that's good. You, you, you're dedicated. You, you have uh, understanding and that you want to share that with uh, the world. That is important. Thank you. You. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about those medical records that pile on your desk this, with, with all of your malpractice uh, uh, litigation. What kind of process do you have in place? to help manage those records, get them the reviewed, get, keep them organized, and to assist and support your case. You know, it's interesting. The world has changed in the last decade really? when it comes to that world. And there's parts of it that I certainly think are beneficial. And there are parts of it that I look back to how it was 10 years ago. At least for my practice, I found it much easier. Paper records um, meant that people chose the words. Paper records meant that, you know, people wrote what they actually were thinking. Electronic medical records have some wonderful benefits. Number one, portability. Nobody will disagree that that isn't a positive to it. The negative to what has happened is, is that now you have these drop down lists. You know, you have these portions of the record where no one's actually writing anything. You know, I, I, I deposed, you know, a, a nurse in an ER actually in a suicide case where literally, you know, two paragraphs long, something in, in the record. And I was able to identify that literally every single line was a pre-populated choice for her that she could do. In the, my young days, we used to always talk about, you know, you look at a record, you'll probably smile when I show you this, and you'd see WNL in a record, you know, and I was always taught when you saw WNL not to think within normal limits, but to think we never looked. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. And because unfortunately, you look at these records where, you know, somebody had something really obviously wrong, but it wasn't in the focus of the exam. And so... They just put, you know, WNL in and sure enough, they missed some. Today, 
I find that to be even more of a difficulty because so much can either be pre-populated or chosen, you know, from a choice of items. And it, the more you stick to what the options are, the faster you're able to work. Faster you're able to work, the more patients you're able to see. Patients you're able to see, the more the economic benefit is unfortunately there. So I found that um, getting people like yourself who understand electronic medical records, who have that ability to see to it that you can kind of guide me through what to look at and not to look at. Uh, the benefit that you can, if I send you a record, um, that you can add bookmarks to it and bring my attention to certain things that I can also use to bring to the attention of experts is very valuable. Um, the fact that we can do that in effect, uh, in an interface where, you know, you can do that and my partner Aubrey can do that, you know, kind of work off each other in that regard, it certainly does enable all of us to get to things a little more. Um, and I, I think the other thing we've done is we've really tried to talk to people in the field working with EMR, understanding water trails, understanding when there's something to go looking for as opposed to seemingly always, you know, chasing, um, I don't know which, the conspiracy that everybody's out to get me and get clients. Because I do have colleagues who on every single case, you know, are arguing every element of every audit trail at every instance in every one. Uh, I'm, I'm of the belief that when you go before, you know, we all tend to practice in the same locales. When you're appearing before the same judges over and over again, and if every single case you come in on, you're arguing for this, the face of the hospital arguing for the, you know, the nature of what has to be done to protect patients and also produ produce that, it's a lot to ask a judge to order if you're going to ask for every time. Mm. So learning a little bit about when maybe, as they say, you know, there's some smoke, so there might be some fire. And that asking, I find more beneficial. Yeah. yeah. By the way, but I'll jump back in and say, I still like a paper record when I'm at trial. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> well, because you know what you run into? And that I, I don't think, you know, everybody necessarily understands it. Probably most of the listeners to this would understand it or actually is. Whoever's printing the record, it doesn't necessarily print in the same manner every time. I was in a I was in a deposition once with eight lawyers. We had seven different versions of the same digital medical record. Now I don't mean that what was contained in it was different. I mean that the pagination of what we had was different. So when you ask Nurse Jones to go look at page 45 and what was my record, page 45, turned out to be that it was, you know, page, you know, 17 in hers. And you spent a whole lot of time trying to figure that out. And the total number of pages of the seven versions we had because of people who printed and, you know, kind of some flowed over on a page, others bounced out to new pages. No, one of the records was, you know, as short as 60 pages, and another one of the records was as long as 75. 
yet the content was the same. So there is a certain something I find to the old way. That, yeah, so we'll certainly say, because we've talked about cost, the new way does because of the high-tech rules and the ability to have a client much more you know, reliably obtain a record of their own that's going to be placed on a CD and is going to be produced for the cost of the CD instead of these rec medical record retrieval companies that you know want a dollar a page multiplied out by every imaginable page they can come up with um, makes a difference in terms of the long-term investment in the early part of a case, helping you decide what you take, shouldn't take more readily. Ah, well, I've, I've heard what some of the things you find frustrating about like with these electronic medical records. And I can't tell you, you're, you're the only one this year has, that has cheered for paper records for you. Bring on some things, okay? <laughs> All right, Drew. So tell me, I know you have given me a lot of clues, a lot of advice, a lot of red flags that the people should look out for, attorneys should look out for. But uh, give me a few nuggets that of, of advice you'd give to a new or a veteran attorney like yourself regarding deciding if they should take or shouldn't take those medical cases that come down, you know, their way. Well, let me start off by saying one of the most unfortunate things is uh, now my jurisdiction up until COVID, um, most of the counties I practiced in, you would get to trial all times in about uh, two and a half to three and a half years. And because our statute of limitations is two years, generally speaking, that meant the case was no more than about four and a half, five years from whatever incidents there were. I certainly have friends who practice in jurisdictions that cases take much longer to get to trial than that. And I can certainly tell you that in New Jersey right now, we haven't had a medical malpractice trial uh, in the counties I practice in uh, since the start of the pandemic. And so all of them are getting backed up. I just today, case I, I filed in 2015, I got a notice telling me that the court, uh, with no request for it to be moved, uh, moved it to January from September. Again, it's just the nature of what they can accommodate right now because of, of pandemic. Um, so having said that, the advice I'd give is, um, what is your client going to look like and seem like to a jury, not today while you're talking to that client, but when that time comes for them to go to trial. Juries tend to absolutely compensate what they can see, they can, they, they can you know, uh, feel, what they can hear clearly. If you have a client who is going to, you know, walk into the courtroom, um, when the case comes up for trial and the jurors are going to not know who the plaintiff is because your client looks perfectly fine to them, you've already started at a disadvantage. So that doesn't mean no. That means put up a little yellow flag to think about that. Um, you know, many of the missed appendicitis cases, the people are horrible for 72 hours and in many instances, even longer sometimes. But by the time they come to trial, everything's back 
ill to norm. And that does not change your cost. Still have to say, have somebody who's going to criticize each of the doctors, any of the nurses, if you're dealing in an institutional change, now you're still spending the same amount of money on a case that may not be able to produce the same amount of damage as some other case that might take. The second thing is, um, do your best to try and always, you know, help anybody you can, but be aware that if your inventory grows too much and you have too many cases, you're not doing anybody any favors, including yourself. Um, now having people who can help you manage those things do make a difference. Individuals like yourself and others who you know, help manage medical record considerations work to try and reduce the amount of, uh, tense focus somebody has to have to get to the heart of where's you no, know, my partner Armin loves to refer sometimes to when you're looking at a radiological study, like there's a certain amount of degree to which it's like playing that game where the wall down. And if I have to tell you that there's a wall though there, you're already at a disadvantage. But if I have to show you where Waldo is, then you're really at a disadvantage. And I look at it in many respects that if you have a 3000 page record and you're trying to find Waldo, you better have somebody helping you who has that ability to spend the time necessary to truly look page by page for where Waldo exists and not to sound silly, some people by virtue of their experience and training are better at that. And so they're much more readily capable of determining whether there's a world on that page or not. That sounds like good advice, Drew. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm very good at where's Waldo. I do. I, that's, that's my thing. Uh, Drew, it's wonderful having you. I'm so glad you, you've come with us today and shared all of your knowledge nuggets with us. I, I'm sure all of our viewers are appreciating that. And uh, what we're going to do is scoot over and get ready for a question and answer with Drew. So if anybody out there has, I can't imagine you have any questions after that thorough presentation, but if you do, start getting them together so you can put them inside this comment box and Drew will answer them very quickly, I'm sure, but thoroughly. <laughs> oh, Drew, let, um, we're going to get ready for your question and answer session. And while everyone's getting their questions together, it's time for what I call a commercial break. So here we are. Um, Drew was talking about those electronic medical records, those drop-down boxes. Huh? They can be a little flat and uninspiring. But here at Wade Nurse Consultants, we've got legal nurse consultants that can uh, take a peek inside of those thousands of pages of medical records and flesh them out, give them life, breathe life right into them and give you a real picture that you can have Juries sink their teeth into about what happened with your client. 
So we offer you here at Wade Nurse Consultants a review of your medical records. We give you attorneys a one to two page synopsis and an opinion regarding the merits of those medical cases that come across your desk. I do it using my 30 years or more of nursing experience to make really quick work of the medical case screenings that come your way. So if you're watching this and you have your own legal nurse consultant, then this is not for you. So uh, if, you, if you need a legal nurse consultant, you're ready to attack any backlog of those cases that you have built up on your desk and you need to get clarity on medical issues and free yourself to focus on your legal strategies, then all you have to do is come over to uh, a 20-minute or, or, yes, medical case strategy call at um, uh, with me and we'll help you hone an efficient and timely and cost-effective routine around your medical case screenings. So in the end up in this chat, a link to schedule that free 15-minute call and get a jump on your medical case blog. So now it's time for Drew's question and answers. So let's go back over. Drew, are there any questions? Let me look. Not yet, but that's, but that's all right. <laughs> because a lot of folks are watching on the replay. So is it all right if I put your contact information inside the description box for this YouTube channel and people can reach out and ask you their questions, you know, that way. How's that sound? Sounds wonderful. Perfect. So everybody, take a look inside this description box of this YouTube channel and get Drew's contact information and give him a call. Shoot him an email. He would love to talk to you. He's a good talker. And, and He's he's got so much experience. Um, so I think we're going to wind up for now. I don't see any questions in the chat, but um, I have a question for you, Drew. Sure. Will you come back again? Absolutely. Hey, it was it was a fun. It was a ball having you. You're. But Lisa, I have a question for you. Oh boy. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm ready. My wife does this. Everything we go to, okay? What is the one question that you wish somebody would ask you? Um, what's the one question somebody should ask me? You wish they would ask you. Nobody ever asked you. What should they would ever ask me this? Okay. Um, I wish they would ask me to, you know, um, to 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 take a unscheduled vacation you know like a spontaneous you know invite me over to your 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 summer house that kind of thing i wish someone would ask me that <laughs> and uh, nobody has yet <laughs> as yet but if you do have a summer house and your needs you come let me know drew ask me and you never know what the answer will be I'll let my wife know since the effect <laughs> our summer house is our other house. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. 
and you're not there. So maybe you just need somebody to visit and pick up your mail. So let me know. (laughs) Well, thank you again for being with us, Drew. Same here. And I'll invite you again for sure. Let me remind everybody out there to like our show, like this video, subscribe to this channel, and then turn on your notifications so you can find out, you know, when Drew's going to be on again, amongst others. But, uh, and if you have any legal nurse consulting questions, give me a call or give me a, an email, lisa at wadenurseconsultants.com. But come back again next week, Monday, 5.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for another episode of Should You Take That Case? Thanks for watching and listening to another episode of Should You Take That Case with your host, Lisa Wade, your friendly neighborhood legal nurse consultant, owner of Wade Nurse Consultants, and creator of our private LinkedIn community, the Attorney Medical Record Resource Group. That is where we get all of our stellar attorney guests. The goal of our show is to be a resource for legal professionals who pursue medical cases by sharing their experiences and insights as defense or as plaintiff attorneys. You can catch prior episodes at www.wavenurseconsultants.com slash blog, on LinkedIn, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for subscribing to our YouTube channel and sharing this show with others.